welcome to Revolutionary Women. My name is Tess Silverman. Women around the world are constantly creating ways to make a difference in their communities, and today's guest is no exception. My guest today is Melissa Dupre. Melissa is a multidisciplinary artist with roots from Humboldt Park, Chicago. After earning double bachelor degrees from the University of Houston, she returned to Chicago to join the all-Latina theater company Teatro Luna. Her one-woman show, Sexomedy, in 2012, was developed during their monthly series for women of color in the arts and received a Chicago Reader recommendation, a member's pick, and had a successful debut off-Broadway in New York. The popular show spurred a progressive sequel, Sexomedy 2.0, which debuted at Steppenwolf Theater in April 2019. Her second solo show, Sushi Frito, has also been critically acclaimed as part of MPAACT's signature series for solo artists. In 2014, she was selected as a new talent in the ABC Diversity Showcase in New York City. Dupre is also a community organizer and spiritualist who also launched the Good Grief Project, an extension of the social justice component from her play Good Grief, where communities of color are connected to local, accessible, and multidisciplinary mental and spiritual wellness practitioners of color. Her full-length play, Bruhaha, was selected as part of 16 Street's new play pop-up reading series for 2019 and is slated for a world premiere in 2021 with Urban Theatre Company. She has performed stand-up comedy in Chicago, New York, New Jersey, Philadelphia, and Los Angeles. She's a featured actor in the Emmy-nominated web series Brown Girls and has many regional and non-regional theater credits in Chicago. She can currently be seen as Dr. Sarah Ortiz on Grey's Anatomy, seasons 17 and 18. Other TV credits include a recurring appearance on Empire and guest appearances on The Resident, Chicago PD, and The Chi. Film credits include Relative, Long Division, Cherry, Two in the Bush, the Way We Speak, and Bromance. As a musician and active member of her community, she's dedicated to the preservation of Puerto Rican culture by way of the folkloric music Bomba y Plena with Afro-Caribe and Las Bon Planeras. She's currently an ensemble member at Urban Theatre Company and artistic associate at Sideshow Theatre. Hi, Melissa. Welcome to Revolutionary Woman. How are you today? I'm doing great. Thank you for having me. Oh, thank you for coming on. Um, so for those who don't know a bit about yourself, can you give me a brief um, intro about you? So I'm so, so happy to be here and happy to share with folks. I am a Chicago Boricua born and raised. My name is Melissa Ray Dupre. I have been in the Humble Park community and Ukrainian village community since 1985. Hmm. I went to school in University of Houston and I got my degree in, in performance studies and uh, Spanish literature. Okay. And then I came back to Chicago after I got my graduate's degree and I started with an all Latina theater company called Teatro Luna. Okay. And that Teatro Luna did a lot of ethnographic biographic work where we told stories about real Latinas um, through interviews and then we put them up on stage using a lot of theater tools that we would see in in musicals and in full productions. And that's how we basically started to lift and center women of color, specifically Latinx in the diaspora. Mm-hmm. 
And then, oh, you know, a few years within that theater group, I was asked to develop some work, develop oh. some, some pieces for showcases, just having a good time. Yeah. But those pieces were so exciting that people wanted to see more of them. And so from Teatro Luna's days in the showcase world, I developed Sexomedy, which is a solo show. It's a, it's a one and a half hour solo work. Oh, I, awesome. Um, and it, yeah, and it ended up being very popular and it sold out several times in Chicago oh, wow. and then it had an off-Broadway production. So my solo work career, who I had always admired John Leguizamo for his ability to be a storyteller, a comedian, mm-hmm. an actor, and and pretty much just a pioneer of of, of our narrative. Mm-hmm. That was very much the vein I wanted to go through. And so because I'm a Black Latina, I am because of my multiple intersectional identities, there was not a lot of work for me. And so I ended up creating my own work so that way I could continue with my degree that I could actually have some stage time. I would, I would create and produce my own work. Mm, Okay. After, after several years and several solo shows, I then started to book theater shows Mm -hmm. like the Goodman, Steppenwolf, Teatro, Vista, um, uh, things at free street theater, court theater. It wasn't until I started making stage time for myself that I actually see work coming in oh. and then after after I became a a, a theater person mm-hmm. you know a playwright uh, that's when I started getting into tv and film so I've done oh. shows like The Shy I've done um yeah, I, Chicago I, I, PD twice wow. and then The Resident and one things to start leading one thing leads to another that's so cool okay so Thank you for that, but I want to go back. So I read it, you moved from Houston, from Chicago to Houston, and then you went to University of Houston for mm-hmm. college. So why move and then move back? Why, why did you have to move from Chicago to go to Houston? Mainly it was for the work. It was oh. because I was not seeing um, work align in Houston. Houston has two pipelines. You can actually go into the Alley Theater, which is a very um, established theater, but it's ensemble based. So there's very few openings. And if there are, they're predominantly white institutions. Oh. And then the Houston Shakespeare Festival, which I am a Shakespeare act- actor. I've been trained in Shakespeare for about eight years, mm-hmm. but there was there was gonna be a, um, a, a quite like challenging and, and competitive work flow there because it, while it was diverse, it mm-hmm. wasn't diverse enough mm. to really feel like I'd be have I'd be able to have a successful career in theater there. So I moved back to Chicago because I knew I was going to get more work. Okay, um, so you're a, you're an actor, producer, playwright. Um, you're also a stand-up comedian. Is that true? Well, yes. Yeah. It's okay. True. Okay. So, all right. So, I mean, what inspired you to pursue a life in the entertainment industry? So, it, because my solo shows were funny in nature, I took some stand-up comedy classes just oh. to kind of sharpen the structure. But you know, the comic that was doing the workshop. Mm-hmm right away told another comedy booker, a Latino comedy booker, hey, this girl is funny. You should get her a guest spot um, as soon as you can. And my first five-minute set was in front of 300 people at Joe's on Street. That was Michael Gendo. Michael Gendo is 
um, a very well-known Chicago Latino comedy booker and a holder of space, right? And so, like, being Puerto Rican, we we definitely show up for each other. We show up for our people. We fill the houses. And what I love about the Chicago theater, I mean, the Chicago comedy community, Mm -hmm. and especially about Latinos in general, is, like, they follow their favorite comic. Mm. And so doing stand-up comedy really also helped build the audiences that would then come see my work Mm -hmm. so it just proved me to continue to work on comedy work on that craft Mm -hmm. because it fed all the other areas of my life and so you know I I I really utilized being a stand-up comedian into my writing into tv Mm -hmm. into you know these scenes where they want you to kind of like you know, spruce it up, mm-hmm. ad lib a little bit, improvise a little bit. Right. You know, it's really necessary that that artists have that ability and that flexibility to just kind of go off the cuff and be in the oh, moment. That's so cool. Okay, so you so you went back to Chicago, and you joined Teatro Luna, as you said. It's an all Latina theater company. Um, yes. And then you develop Sexomedy, and then we, like you said, it went. We even even one off off Broadway. Right, it debuted mm-hmm. off Broadway, and then you produce Sexomedy 2.0. So, can you tell me what that show was about and what inspired you to create them? I mean, I saw a clip of it and I thought it was so funny and relatable. I was just it's like, oh my relatable. gosh. <laughs> It's, it's it's very brazen, right? There's mm-hmm. no holds barred there. And part of that was because I was very tired as a feminist being held by a standard in my body and having having to really deconstruct for myself mm-hmm. what b- body positivity actually looks like, what being sex positive actually looks like, and what allows me to be empowered in my sensuality, my sexuality, not just for sex purposes, but for my own confidence, but for my own core spirit for Mm -hmm. my own um, healing there's so much that women go through and I don't think people talk about it enough like the pressures of going on a date and actually going to get Brazilian wax they they have two (laughs) different implications like you know Mm -hmm. why why should we do that who taught us that that's what it was who taught us that we did that to be feel sexy and so like it came out of a frustration that turned into a rebellion that turned into a celebration of women as they are and understanding that we are all beautiful and that most of those pressures that come from um, society and Mm -hmm. within our dating realms, within our relationships, within sex period with no matter, you know, no matter who, no matter what really comes from larger systems of oppression. And so all of my work is tied to radical love Mm -hmm. and radical, um, self-joy and self-care because most of the things that we are beating ourselves up about especially in our bodies are eurocentric beauty standards and basically white oppression like systemic oppression is especially towards women it's Mm -hmm. like super targeted to us and so sexomedy and sexomedy 2.0 is a way that i use my own body to liberate other bodies I love that. Oh my gosh. I was like, I, I was, I, when I saw that, I'm like, huh, okay, let me look this up. And I was just like <laughs> cracking up. I'm like, oh my gosh. Yep. So it's, true. It's, it's so a true. Fun ride. It's a fun ride. We talk about stretch marks, we talk yes. about body hair. 
Yes. We talk about just kind of the absurdities of interactions. We also, in 2.0, we talk a little bit more about queerness. We talk a little mm. bit more about kink. We talk a little bit about, about self-love and also like the way that our society has also shifted away from heteronormativity, but also we haven't really deconstructed like codependent relationships, attachment, why we love to do the things that we do. So we get a little deeper every single time, mm. but the 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 medium, the vessel of it is like, you know, sex. It all comes, mm-hmm. if, if, if sex revolves around everything and, you know, everything revolves around it, then mm-hmm. why aren't we talking about it in a, in a deeply nuanced way? Right. No, I, I so agree. And, and <laughs> also one point. I, okay. Thank you for that. So you were, you've been on Chicago PD, um, Grey's Anatomy's Dr. Sarah Ortiz, Marisol Garcia in The Resident, both both TV shows I love. Um, yeah, Tomasina I Rios. Love oh my gosh, Tomasina Rios in Empire. I saw clips of that, and I was just like, oh, I love this woman. <laughs> I love the, the your roles, but of of these roles, which one do you think relates to you most? And you know, I mean, do you even think about that when you audition for this? Uh, for your role and how you know how do you want to present yourself you know it's just it's so interesting because tv is the one area where i feel least attached to to my narratives right where like if i'm building relatable roles it's Mm going to be the work that i write and Mm. so in, in tv i've i have never felt so much so much distance between a real embodied character that has you know, real voice. I brought Thomasina to life from Empire. She was only supposed to be a one line, one day walk on really? character. Huh. She she didn't even have a name. You know, <laughs> it was only supposed to be once. And when I went into the room, you know, I I just kind of ad libbed. I had a rant in Spanish, hmm. and the directors and the writers in the room just loved it, and they <sighs> ended up writing for me. And so I think that that's that's probably like the closest experience where I had giving a character a little bit more life than they expected. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Um, so that was fun. And that yeah. was that was really going out on an artistic limb where I just kind of I, I got the ability to be brave and to mm. take risks chances and they bet on me it was uh-huh. also the final season of empire so they uh-huh. were more willing to, to play uh, um okay. but i will say gray's anatomy has a very very special place in my heart because it's intentionally written as an afro-latina character mm. she is um she came in with her mother they were both assigned to grace Sloan memorial in their internship lisa vidal mm-hmm. played my mother last season and she's just such a powerhouse a pioneer of a latina been in the industry for over 20 years mm. and yeah. she you know she's just incredible incredible and so i really felt attached to the mother-daughter storyline last year mm-hmm. um because this show really came into my life because my mother and i watched it religiously mm. it was our care it was our mother-daughter time watching it through the years from high school into college she Mm -hmm. would pull me out of my all-nighters when I was stressed on Thursdays Mm. and she would say you know this is our time and so we would watch Grey's Anatomy private practice and when she transitioned she's an ancestor now Mm -hmm. she really opened this door for me because I would not have gotten to this show otherwise I was Mm. in Chicago I Mm -hmm. got a request 
for a self-tape audition on a Wednesday. By Friday afternoon, I got a call that I booked it. Saturday morning, I packed my car. Monday morning, I was on the lot. Wow. You know, wait. <laughs> Right. And the way that that works out is that I truly believe that my mother gave me this job to 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 really kind of sink in and own this story that I belonged here Mm -hmm. and that it's a show that's 18 seasons in. It's historic. It is crazy. It's historic and it's it's iconic, really. There are some one liners. There's some relationships here that that have really shaped us. Mm -hmm. There are. There are characters that have been with us for generations. There are Emmy Award winners. There are people like Debbie Allen, who's mm-hmm. who just won the Governor's Award mm-hmm. for her lifetime achievements. It's just you're, you're surrounded by greatness here. And so this right now in this moment is incredible for me for so many reasons, but mostly because of the attachment I have with the show through my mother. Wow, that's incredible. So, I mean, you mentioned Debbie Allen. So when you... When she shows up in the set, the, the first time, if you had, the, the first time you met her, was it oh, like? Oh, honey, I passed out. I passed out <laughs> because because the first of all, like the first the first episode, I came here. Um, the 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 actor who plays Dr. Owen, his name is Kevin McKidd. Mm-hmm. He also directs a lot of episodes, and so I was just starstruck at first <laughs> that Kevin was directing and we have the scene where all the interns are on here uh-huh. and he makes he makes a note and be like you know I, mm-hmm. I think the scene's all right this is how i would do it i don't know how miss debbie allen would do it and she was behind us the <laughs> oh, whole geez. time and i turn around and i said i got so loud i was like get out of here and oh she just floats in the room she also directs episodes yeah um, she's the executive producer and an actor so when she when she, when people call her a powerhouse that's exactly what she is yeah she's wearing many hats at once and she just does it so gracefully she has an aura about her that's just so accessible and Mm -hmm. light and loving she gets down to business don't get me wrong she's Mm -hmm. Debbie Allen for a reason Mm -hmm. (laughs) but Mm -hmm. but uh yeah you know when she walked down to the set you just kind of have to pinch yourself (laughs) that you're sharing that you're breathing her air that you're sharing her space oh my gosh yeah I would have passed out too (laughs) I would have been like oh my gosh I probably would have like lost my lines would not have been able to work <laughs> I was like it's, wow it's, it's kind of hard to, to focus that's for sure mm. okay so so you were talking about your comedy and um so you did stand-up comedy in Chicago New York New Jersey Philly and LA now that's that's pretty cool so do you think that there's more women in comedy now especially women of color absolutely mm. absolutely and it's, it's such a wonderful a wonderful time to be a woman of color in this in this moment because our narratives now are being sought after versus when we had to pry them into sets. Mm. Um, you know, we're still still having some trouble getting bookers to to curate their lineup equitably, and I think that they still think that we don't exist and mm. that we're not around, but we are. It's just that some of those spaces are still somewhat toxic, right? Yeah. Like this is a predominantly white man led. Um, industry and it is becoming so vast Mm. so diverse so um multifaceted in its representation and i think women in comedy right now Mm -hmm. are are really hitting the ground running i just wish that there was more support in in their futures and their longevity so we see them blip on the screen but we're not buying their works we're not buying their projects we see them when they're on netflix but we're not going out when they have tours Mm. and the pandemic of course has uh, influenced that a lot right and so 
Yeah. Um, women are definitely coming up and coming out, but they're still so marginalized mm-hmm. and in need of support and centering, especially around larger platforms. Mm, I, I so agree. Yeah. I mean, you know, it's a good it's a good time for sure. And I'm glad it, it is like it's definitely becoming more diverse, you know, within the entertainment industry. But we de- there's definitely more room. <laughs> there's a lot more room for, uh, you know, for women to get in there, which is great. Yes, so um, so you are also in, in. So I read that you were in a film. Well, you're a producer as well, and you produced a show, a film called Bromance. What was yeah. that? What was that about? Um, Bromance, Bromance and The Way We Talk are both films by a man named Matthew Aaron. Mm-hmm. Matthew, Matthew Aaron is a filmmaker that bounces back and forth from Chicago to L.A. Mm-hmm. And he he really loves lifting um, male centered stories that are kind of combating toxic masculinity from like the Italian side. So it's, it's, oh. both of those films are like a five, a five bro team of these husky, heavy Italians <laughs> that are really grappling with homosexuality, that they're oh. grappling with how to, how to navigate it, how to like treat their friends um, huh. uh, lovingly through questions of homosexuality within the Italian um, community. So like, they bring in their fun friend Latina mm-hmm. and they kind of help um, elevate that story and center center narratives that would not normally be centered. Mm. Okay. And you... so they're all they're all fun. They're uh-huh. all fun movies. They're both independent films that we help okay. produce. Oh cool. Um, they're Chicago based, where Chicago is a character in and of itself. Uh-huh. Oh, um that's very yeah, cool. yeah, and and bromance bromance was uh it's a story about couples, couples who are coming to a house together for a divorce party. And so uh-huh. what ensues at the house is a mix between like histories and in their interpersonal relationships huh. with their marriages, with their love lives, with their futures. And it's it's, wow. it's a really interesting way to group folks together in one house. And we definitely filmed it in the house over a period of seven days where like I was cooking for the crew. Oh, gee. Wow. It it was, it was quite an adventure. Okay. So, so you were also in a film called Two in the Bush. How did that film come about? And I mean, I, I saw the trailer and it looked really good. I mean, so what was the premise of that film and how did it do in distribution? I I called Two in the Bush uh, polycom where it is like one of the few films that handles polyamorous relationships mm-hmm. in a really loving gentle and equitable way where it's not um, fetishized it is built around a couple who invites another woman into their relationship mm-hmm. as a, as a form of polyamory mm-hmm. and so we we don't see that kind of love we see we call it a love triangle right where like there's always feeding one or the other but why not both or mm-hmm. why not all of it and how do we have those relationships? How do we even have conversations around jealousy, mm. uh, possessiveness, breaking heteronormativity, right? Because even within gay communities, there's still like d- heteronormative dreams, right? Like mm-hmm. a gay couple can still really want for that picket uh, that picket fence in the house and mm-hmm. the two kids and right. living in the suburbs. That, like, that's still very much a heteronormative value and need. 
um, but even even in the gay community. So we're also exploring kink in different ways. They work in a dungeon. I play the best friend to the girl who gets invited into the other relationship. Mm -hmm. And it's really about us finding what value is in love. Like, what is it there for? How do we engage with it? Mm -hmm. Um, How do we, how do we even serve and surrender to it when we know that this is what we want, Um, but it doesn't fit a form. It doesn't fit a mold. It's, it's such a funny and charming movie. Mm. It's available on platforms to stream. So anybody can access it. It was very popular in all of the independent film circuits Uh and the film festivals. Quite, quite popular. So much so that it was able to get into Amazon Prime for streaming. Oh, that's Uh, awesome. It just swept. It swept. It was invited into almost all of the the LGBTQTIA festivals and as well as Chicago Film Festivals, it did really well there. Um, And I really think that's because of the production. We had some of the best cinematographers, the best crew. Mm. It was almost all women-led. Really? That's incredible. Wow. That's really incredible. I love that. The crew was 95% women. That's amazing. That's really amazing. Oh man, you know, more power to women. I love that. That's, and yes. I mean, I like the the story behind it because at the end of the day, you know, everyone falls in love. And then it doesn't matter, you know, as like where you're from, everyone mm-hmm. falls in love and it just depends on how you are, you know, how love is um I guess love is dealt between two people and then when it gets complicated, how you how you actually deal with that. So that's interesting, huh? Okay, and I'm I'm really now I have to look that up. Um, okay, so you're also in three upcoming films: Ghost Rider, The Way We Talk, and Relative. You're quite busy. So I mean, have yes. have you also been busy during the pandemic? The pandemic has been a gift to me. Mm. I honestly can say that I've had my most successful career jumps within 2020 and 2021. Mm. Um, I did relative and um, a film called Long Division. I did two movies back to back to independent film (laughs) this summer. And I did two pilots this summer. Wow! Um, Both of those pilots are being pitched right now for pickup. Oh my gosh, Melissa, that's amazing. that, That was this year. Last year, I was able to pandemic that forced stillness Mm. was such a gift right like there are so many people who are on a moving train that just has no breaks Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. it is hard to balance self-care your family your your priorities yourself all within the frameworks of of working right Mm -hmm. so um you're also an activist, and in 2018, you were one of the speakers for the Chicago Women's March. How was yes. that for you, and why was it important for you to speak up? Uh, the Chicago Women's March was something that I attended in 2017, and I just oh. noticed I noticed at the time when it was needed, there was a big push towards centering women, and, and within that, there's still very much nuanced conversations of like which women really mm. do benefit from centering what women historically has always benefited from centering and what women are we not seeing that that 
other women still pretty much can um, benefit from having those movements created. For example, the Me Too movement was absolutely created by Black women Mm -hmm. that was then co-opted by white women and that's proven to benefit them specifically. And so I chose to get involved when the Chicago Women's Festival, I mean, Chicago Women's March Mm -hmm. reached out to me to Mm -hmm. be an MC and speaker. And I shared with them my thoughts about being a participant the year before and what I really wanted to see. Mm -hmm. And so we had conversations with the organizers where we brought in youth, we brought in um, black feminists, we brought in indigenous feminists, we brought in Latinx feminists, people who actually um, had stake and and a claim into the city and Mm -hmm. that was doing the work in the front lines community, especially in Chicago where it's so hyper radicalized and hyper policed. Mm -hmm. There were conversations that were not happening at the Chicago Women's March that I thought should happen. Wow. And so in order for me to lend my energy, my time, my my name, mm-hmm. I really wanted to make sure that we were working in conjunction with communities and frontline organizations that were doing the work. That's so mm-hmm. it that was it was fun. It was important. Um I was also able to bring my grandmother on stage. My grandmother oh, was wow. one of the first Puerto Rican women in Chicago that were hired by the the first daily administration and she was in charge of making sure Puerto Ricans were registered to vote for the yes. first time from mm-hmm. the 1960s in that huh. major migration. Wow. That's amazing. So I was able to bring her yeah, I was able to bring her on stage and it was an incredible moment for her visibility mm-hmm. for our heritage, for our lineage. It was it was important. Oh my gosh. And is she just as active right now or She's active on Facebook. She's 88 years old. <laughs> I love it. Oh, my gosh. She's, she's an active troll on Facebook, for <laughs> I sure. I love it. That's she's awesome. Metabelando, metabelando. Wow, that's amazing. And so whenever I'm not around the around the house, you mm-hmm. know, she'll go on Facebook and she'll watch and see. But that's also a way that she can participate because she's not as mobile as she used to be. Mm-hmm. But oh, God bless her. I, I love that I have my abuela for my mother. That's you awesome. Know, she's, soy la nena de mi abuela. Oh, I love it. That's amazing. I love that. Okay, so in, in addition to being in the entertainment industry, you're also passionate about preserving Puerto Rican culture via music. Mm-hmm. Can you tell yes. me more about that? Um, like, So, yeah, tell me more about your involvement with that. Yes, yeah, so when I graduated University of Houston, I moved back to Chicago to basically have a rebirth, you know, mm-hmm. to, to learn myself, learn who I was in as, an, as an adult after undergraduate, learn who I wanted to be in the world, but mostly because I felt so detached from my roots, from my community, mm-hmm. from my heritage, from my family. There are not a lot of Puerto Ricans outside of like these larger cities. Mm-hmm. And so it was really important to me to get back and get connected in order to me, order for me as a person, not mm-hmm. as an artist, but as a, as an individual to reconnect with my roots. Um, and it was important to me at the time mm-hmm. that Bomba be one of those ways. It was introduced to me as a way of healing. Mm. Um, Bomba is the music of rebellion, the music of revolution. Oh. Bomba was brought to us by our African ancestors to the Caribbean islands by way of the slave trade. And so it's important that their cultures that have influenced so many of our our cultures that they remain alive and that they remain decolonized. Mm -hmm. And Bomba is a beautiful fusion with our Taino heritage and with our African ancestry that 
Bomba feels for me the the most decolonized ways to stay rooted to our heritage, but mostly for our centering of blackness in mm. the diaspora, in the Latinx community, we really have to have conversations around blackness within our own communities, how we deal with it. And if we're so quick to like say, well, we're a mezcla, we're three of these of these really beautiful heritage, de España, de Africa, de, de indígena, Taino, mm -hmm. what are we centering when we, especially when we have movements come about and, and we take up space, we have to really honor and lift our ancestors that made all of this possible. So Bomba is one of them, I became a musician I was a dancer. Like this is also in my blood. It's in my generations. Mm -hmm. I have musicians in my family that are were part of Plenero de los 21 in New York uh -huh. and in Puerto Rico, and and I have family in Luis Aldea, which is a black town in Puerto Rico that is still self governing. Huh? So wow. this was this was a way for me to really connect with my ancestors and with my culture, so that way healing and growth can happen. And That's... then I ended up being in a band for 12 years. <laughs> so That's incredible. So, um, I love that. Yeah. Yeah. These women really have an important role in my life. Wow. Um, but the the preservation of Bomba y Plena mm -hmm. um, is something that's quite popular now, right? Mm. We have all these festivals. When we have festivals, we can't negate that there's folklore and indigenous music there. Mm -hmm. For sure. So... Yeah, so then they always need somebody, but they, they want to also hire um, bands and musicians that can kind of contemporize it, not modify it, but mm -hmm. bring new generations in. Mm -hmm. And that's what we're doing. We're bringing new generations into this folklore music that's over 400 years old wow. because we make it popular to do so. We make it cool to be folkloric. We make it cool to be a dancer in Bomba where you can bring in some break dance, where you could bring in some footwork and mm. make it your own expression. And that's, it's a really beautiful movement that's happening now in the community mm. led by some of the, the, the more younger students who still have a appreciation for their elders and for the scholarly work that goes into preserving something as old as Bomba. That's really awesome. Okay. And and so as, as a woman who's constantly creating what is your most favorite medium and why? What's my most favorite medium and why? You know, I think at the end of the day, I'm a teatrista. Hmm. Um, I, I really love the way that we create and collaborate within the theater community, how all of these moving parts come together for a live experience, mm -hmm. how so much um, catharsis can really happen within the audience. You can really have an energy exchange in the audience. Whereas like, it's just a different modality when mm -hmm. you're doing the same scene three mm -hmm. or four times over and over. Right. And you don't get to see the end result until weeks and weeks later. Yeah. Um, yeah. I think, I think living on stage and breathing on stage has been my most authentic truth. Mm -hmm. And I, I'm a producer, director, playwright. Like I, I think that that medium can really spark conversations when you have a live experience. Oh, for sure. Yeah. Because you really do feel, you know, the audience, um, you're affecting, you're affecting the audience with how you, um, you are on stage, you know, mm -hmm. and, and if exactly. you're having, 
if you're having a good day, they can see it. If you're having a bad day, they can see it. Mm-hmm. You know, so there's mm-hmm. no hiding in the film. In film, it's different. You know, you, there's right. a, there, you can you can kind of hide from that. But you, when you're up there, you you bear yourself. You know, and that's what I love about theater. Yeah, too. you're very vulnerable. Yeah, yeah. You see the real, you know, or as much real essence of the person up there of of that actor. So yes. I, I, I love that. Okay. Um, so is there someone you would credit for where you are now? Someone? Someone or people you would give credit to for where you are now? Mm-hmm. No one has ever asked me this. <laughs> <laughs> um, you, you know, I, I will say my mother was probably the only person in my entire life throughout my life that was always 101% behind my career choices Mm. and behind all of my choices, all of my um, development. And um, even against her own best wishes Mm. of me becoming a politician or a doctor, Mm -hmm. um, when I told her what I wanted to do, she was always 100% on board. Now, the other person in that is myself, right? Mm-hmm. My mother didn't graduate high school. Mm-hmm. My father has an eighth grade education. Mm-hmm. My grandparents um, didn't make it past third grade from the oh. island, but they are mm-hmm. all working professionals. Amazing. Um, I, I really do feel that part of what got me here was the support of my mother but also my own tenacity in learning how to do what i needed to do in order to get here so if i wasn't supported or if i didn't nobody showed me the way i paid for college myself Mm. you know i i definitely took steps and if i didn't know how i learned and my own work ethic that i've gotten from chicago has really put me in rooms that I do believe I deserve to be in because nobody else has opened the door for me. I basically built mm-hmm. what I have. Mm-hmm. Wow, that's amazing. Okay, and you did, you have, and you continue to do so, you know, because you just like one room opens another room, uh, opens another mm-hmm. opportunity, and, and that's, that's really brilliant. Um, yeah, and all of my work, you know, the, the platforms in which I created work came out of a necessity because I was not booking work. I was not given jobs. I was not given opportunities. My name wasn't on the mouths of people at the time, mm-hmm. you know, so everything that I've created was because I still had, I had a fire, mm-hmm. and I had a talent, and I had no outlet. Mm-hmm. And so I, I did create my yeah. own platform. I created my own stage. Sometimes I just, I would put up a show, mm-hmm. you know, many, many years out of my own pocket. Mm. So, you know, the the things that I continue to create and I'm still writing, I'm still creating shows, I'm still creating um, plays and um, other projects that is coming from my hand. It's coming from my pen. So it's coming from my experience. If I didn't live this experience, I wouldn't have anything to offer. Mm, that's amazing. Okay. Um, is there something you haven't yet done that you would like to do? <laughs> yeah, something I haven't yet done that I would like to do artistically or mm-hmm. like in artistically. life? Artistically. I would... Or actually, do you have any goals in mind, personally? 
Yes, I I really do want to continue to fuse a lot of music mm. in my storytelling. You know, I, I think that live music is something so, so intoxicating for me. You really do get a great experience listening to live music, mm-hmm. being there, feeling the rhythm, feeling the beat. When I dream, when I dream of like being famous, mm-hmm. <laughs> when, when mm-hmm. I dream of being famous, it's because like I'm hosting the Oscars uh-huh. and I'm bringing in all of these like bomba musicians oh, and, it. you know, we're on stage and we're doing, we're doing storytelling, we're doing monologues, we're doing poetry, all with live music. So like all of my dreams are interdisciplinary and mm-hmm. something that I would really like to do is maybe like host an award show oh, cool. and bring in all my people that I know can just set rock the roof off that thing. Yeah, yeah. Rock it out. Awesome. Yeah. Oh my gosh. So um, how can anyone connect with you if they wanted to get to know about your work? You know, what's the best way to do that? Well, I'm a really big fan of social media. I'm mostly on Instagram and Facebook. I always plug what I'm doing next. I have a play called Bruhaha that's opening up this month at ah. the National Puerto Rican Museum in Chicago. Oh, it's wow. my first full-length play being produced by Urban Theater Company. It's quite historic in the sense that there has never been a Chicago playwright produced out of Humble Park, and I'm the first. And the Puerto Rican Theater Company has always had to... Um, bring in work, bring in playwrights from New York hmm. and wow. and from other places to have Puerto Rican playwrights. There's never been one in Chicago. Oh, and so wow. this will be the first work the first piece in 16 years that will be produced by a Chicago Boricua playwright. Wow. That's incredible. Congratulations. Thank you so much. We're really excited about that. But most, you know, mostly people can DM me on Instagram. I get them all. I read them all because I have no life. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, yes, you do. Oh, yes, you do. Yeah. I have a website. I have a website, melissadupay.com, that, Mm -hmm. you know, I try to periodically post up new projects there. But it's mostly socials. Um, Instagram at boomboomdupre is where you can find the latest work. Okay. So is there anything you'd like to um, say to young people who might be interested to, you know, becoming and becoming an actor? If there was any young people listening to this and thinking, you know, I can really go this route, I can really, um, you know, produce my own work or even share a story. I would say your healing and your self-care is the most important because without having an introspective process, the story that lives inside you really doesn't come out. Mm. It doesn't come out freely. Mm-hmm. It doesn't come out honestly. And it doesn't come out in an interesting human way. When wow. we actually sit with ourselves and have that deep conversation and take an inventory of our life, how we got here, then we start to unveil that there's stories that are greater than us and beyond ourselves, but we're included. Mm-hmm. And those are the stories that people want to see is like, how are they interconnected to the human experience. And so if you're not being a full human, then yeah. you have no experience to tell. Mm, I love that. And it's so true. Everybody has every person, you know, you have to know where you came from in order to tell your story. You exactly. Know, I really believe exactly. that. That's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. And if you have a story to tell, know your story, mm-hmm. really sit with it. Yeah. That's awesome. Okay. And if you had... If you had one thing to change that you wish you had done years ago, what would it be? 
Is there something? Have a, I would I would have I would have taken more classes on money management. Oh. Really and honestly, like taxes. <laughs> <laughs> if I if I knew how to be a better or more fiscally responsible person, mm-hmm. I probably would have been able to just be better off in in some of my life goals. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that would have been early. I also think that culturally and societally, my generation has had to struggle, mm. um, you know, yeah. because of the way the government has been set up. And the, and the, and I was in a wave where everybody was pushed to go into college, mm-hmm. even for a liberal arts degree, which like means yeah. nothing in the workforce. Right. Right. And yeah. um, not that it means nothing, but that, it, you know, it's a watered down way of of asking people to submit themselves into this educational system that's also built on money mm-hmm. and institutions. Mm-hmm. And so like, I, I firmly believe that education also doesn't have to come from an institution. If you want to do what we do, find a mentor. You don't mm-hmm. have to go into 60, 70, $100,000 into debt. Mm-hmm. Find a mentor, find a theater company, do the work, just start. Yeah. yeah. Huh. Okay. And my last question is, if you could go back in time, what would you tell your younger self? Mm-hmm. You are enough. Hmm. I love that. Okay. And uh, yep. wow, that's amazing. Okay, Melissa, thank you so much for spending some time with me. I know how busy you are, and congratulations on all of this. Thank you so your... much. I'm so glad this oh worked out, and that that Same you've been here. patient with me this whole time <laughs> as as these months kind of flowed oh and um, for, oh. for spending this moment and oh time. Gosh. Well, you know, I mean, every person has a story and I really wanted to get yes. to know you and all the work that you're, you've done and are continuing to do because you're, you've made such a contribution to, you know, to the industry and, and mm-hmm. I love what you're doing. So please keep it up. And, and I can't Thank wait you. to like, you know, hear more. Actually, I'm going to like be watching some of the, films that you've that you've been work, you've worked on and uh, I'm looking forward to like chatting up with you after this and and letting you you know tell me more about that but uh, again I, I really appreciate the time you spent and um, I wish you lots of luck and please continue to do your work you're doing a, a really great service to your community so. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. Thank you. All right. Well, I'll, well, I'll we'll stay connected. Soon. Let me know what. Thank you. I will. I'll talk to you soon. That's our show for today. I've posted more information about Melissa Dupre on RevWoman.com. Thank you for listening, and I hope you'll tune in every Thursday for another episode of Revolutionary Woman. You can listen to Revolutionary Woman on Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcast. Just a little note, I've launched a Patreon account to support the show. All proceeds will go to producing and editing the episodes to give my poor husband a break for being my personal IT and production department. He wrote this. The address is patreon.com slash revwoman.